Welcome into another edition of the Dana and Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms now. I have to mention that. Dan, my co-host, is back. Dan, appreciate you joining me. And for this edition of the podcast, we are joined by a special guest. You might have just heard him on gozavior.com this past weekend. He is Paul Frischner, the voice of the Musketeers, at least for a day, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, as he called that game uh, against Toledo. Musketeers picked up a thrilling win. Paul, thanks for joining us. First of all, just give the people a little bit of background. When did you graduate from Xavier? Yeah, sure. I, first of all, Rick, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, I don't have any pets. I have no cats. Nobody's going to interrupt <laughs> this, so we'll be, we'll be good. And, you know, nobody's going to be come walking in that door here. Uh, but no, thanks for having me, Rick. Dan, I uh, appreciate it. Um, I graduated from Xavier uh, in 19, so I've been out for about a year and a half now. And I did broadcasting at Xavier uh, all four years there. That was one of the reasons I went to Xavier because I knew, you know, if you go to Syracuse or Northwestern or Missouri or Arizona State or any of those, you got to wait your turn and, and get on hopefully as an upperclassman. But at Xavier, I got on right away. And I'd be remiss, again, if I didn't start this by giving all the credit in the world to my guy that I – uh, called the game with Mike Schmaltz. I mean, he's been on the air with Xavier doing women's basketball games since 2002. And that guy has done every sport at Xavier for all those years, baseball, men's and women's soccer, volleyball. I think he's probably been the biggest influence on my broadcasting career. So getting to do that game on Friday with him, somebody I broadcasted with through college and then doing the Xavier game with him, uh, it meant the world. It was great. What's your typical day like with the game day crew at CentOS? Because you work most games at the CentOS Center. Yeah, yeah. It's really whatever Tom Iser wants me to do or whatever, whoever assigns me to the game, Greg Lawsonheiser, whoever it is that assigns me to the game, I'll do whatever they ask me to do, especially now that uh, I'm around here in Cincinnati. I moved here uh, this year. My family moved here. So um, I'm around here in Cincinnati and I'm around doing the games. So whatever they ask me to do this week, for the noon games, for the Xavier games, I was doing the official stats, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically I have a headset on. A mic was sitting to my left being the timeout coordinator, so the person who's communicating with the TV truck, telling them when they're coming out of commercials, when the referees can play the game. Uh, my job was to do the official stats, so I'm telling the truck, hey, you know, Kiki's got – 24 that's a career high or he's got in the first game he had 18 that's a career high uh in the in the first game it was funny in the first game we were doing the stats uh i kept buzzing in and saying so-and-so's career highs you know career high assists career high rebounds all this and <laughs> yeah. my guy was just like you know what i'm just gonna assume everything's a career high and <laughs> we'll just work off that and who's that so. who, who are you communicating with paul with the fs1 team or with uh or with the uh, or with the state, the, the arena staff who put yeah. stuff up on the scoreboard and stuff. So when I do official stats, I communicate with the TV truck that's sitting out behind the loading dock. So I have a headset on, and then there's also the talents, the talent stats, which I also, I'll rotate in between doing talent and official stats. The talent stats person uh, sits directly off the left shoulder of the play-by-play -play broadcaster, mm. and they will write on a post-it note, and they'll say like 10-0 run or whatever, just those little nuggets that you'll hear the broadcasters say. And I communicate. We both have the same feed on our headsets, and we're both communicating to the truck as well so that they can then build out the graphics. So it was kind of funny. I was tweeting out a lot of the stats that I was feeding, and a, a few of my friends were texting me and saying, if you were paying attention to my Twitter feed on that first game on Wednesday against Oakland, it was like I was 
10 seconds ahead of the broadcast because everything I was giving to the truck, I was trying to tweet out. So if you weren't listening or whatever, you could get it too. But yeah, it, it's a little, it's cool. It's behind the scenes that you know that I have the headset on and I'll do the stats for them. And that's what I'll do uh, tomorrow night too against Eastern Kentucky. So tell us about, so on Friday, obviously, um, you know, it was, it, it was strange because I, I actually tuned into the game a little bit late and I'm like looking at it on TV, like what the heck's going on? And then I saw the, <laughs> the, the tweet that X had put out and I think they just put the tweet out like eight minutes before tip off that they were yeah. going to be uh, uh, broadcasting and streaming the entire game on the website. So like, Tell, like, can you walk Rick and I through, give us like the TikTok of Friday. Like when did you show up <laughs> at the arena? Like when did you realize, Oh crap, I better get my suit on. I, I'm going to be on, t-, you know, just yeah. kind of walk us through that. Well, it was crazy. It was crazy. So I was a uh, funny thing was I was trying to be there. I always try to be there about an hour before the game. Um, if not a little earlier, but Friday I had bought a new suit. I made use of uh, Macy's black Friday deal. And <laughs> I, uh, I realized walking out the door, I still had the tags on my pants. So I had to go back in and cut all the tags off. And that's why I was like, I was like 11 15 when I was coming up victory parkway and Mike was already there. And Mike texted me and he said, Hey, uh, one of the FS1 guys, I don't know if it was supposed to be FS1 or FS2, one of the Fox Sports guys uh, has, there's a COVID issue with them and it's it's done. And I my what I was thinking was they're canceling the games. That was the way I interpreted it. So I was like, oh, do I even walk in? Do I turn around? Whatever. I was like, all right, I guess I might as well go in. So at this point, it's about 11.15 and I pull up, I come back into R1 behind Centos Center and there's the TV truck back there by the loading dock. And the whole TV crew is standing outside in a powwow talk. And I can see him disassembling all the cameras and cords and all the cabling, everything. And I'm like, all right, I don't know if they're playing the game, but there's definitely not going to be a TV broadcast. So I go in, I, I bring my jacket in, I walk in like I'm going to do the game and uh, or like I'm going to you know work the game. And I get in and uh, Brian Hicks, who I'm sure most of you listening know, but uh marketing uh brian hicks he's phenomenal with him and then uh tom eiser was standing there and then chris schaff and dave overbeck uh who are the centos center's uh video production crew they're standing there as well and i immediately got told that they were going to play the game but there was just going to be no fox sports broadcast i walk around the corner and mike is standing there and i said well are any chance like maybe we get this and I thought no no they'll figure something out or Fox won't give us the rights because that was the other thing too Fox had the rights to the game so they had to give us the rights to be able to do it so Brian Hicks calls LA and Fox says and this is my understanding of it from what I was what I was told after the game and how it all went down Brian Hicks calls LA Fox surrenders the rights and says hey we're not broadcasting the game you know, but we don't, it's whatever you guys can come up with. So then because Fox surrenders the rights, it goes to New York for the big East. Tom Iser calls the big East. The big East says, sure. If you guys can yep. put it on and you can put it on at this point, while that's all happening back in the loading dock, I'm sitting out at mid court. My headset is gone because Fox has disassembled the official stats and the TOC headsets. And the, that table at mid court is empty and I'm sitting there looking at Mike, I go, well, we got the best seat in the house. I guess I'll tweet some pictures and videos out and just watch the game and, and just enjoy the game. And then at about 1130, uh, Greg Lotzenheiser, who is an SID for Xavier. Uh, I've worked with him all 
four years while I was a student and, and my years after SID for women's basketball, he's been around the block. He, he, he's no stranger to a situation like this. And he said, Hey, Mike and Paul. And again, this was like 25 minutes before tip. Why don't you guys go up and sit at the broadcast table in case we get these rights and in case that we can make this happen. The FS one broadcast, uh, Lane Grindle and Nick Baugh were sitting over in the, uh, behind the basket in the student section, which mm-hmm. if you were watching, you could probably see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but our broadcast, because Mike and I had done the afternoon games for flow sports, we were sitting up in the handicap seating on the concourse level um, up on like behind the Xavier bench. So we go up there and we sit down and now we're about 15, 20 minutes from tip and we're sitting there as if we're going to call the game, but we still haven't gotten any official word yet because we're still trying to figure it out. And I'm going, all right, Mike, I mean, we've done enough volleyball games. We've done enough Cintas productions where this is going to be no different if we can figure out a way to do this. And now there's 10, 15 minutes on the clock. And I texted Greg Lotzenheiser and I said, Hey, are we doing this? Like, can I tweet something out? Are we doing this? And he said, no, hold on a second. We're still figuring it out. So now we're down to like 10 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, Greg says, okay, we're good. We're about to announce it. So I'm like, all right, this is happening. And Dave Overbeck, who again is one of the Centos centers production staff crew, he comes over and taps us on the shoulder and he says, Hey guys, completely like calm under control. There was never any panic around with any of us. Cause like I said, we've done this a million times being able to do a production like this. And he said, Hey, you may not hear us in your headset as a producer. Usually we can hear the broadcasters can hear the producers in the headset. Dave goes, you may not hear us in the headset. You may not know when you're live. You may not (laughs) know when we're going to commercial. You may not know which cameras are on, but we're going to do this and we're going to fly by the seat of our pants and we're going to get it done. And Mike and I said, Hey, we've done enough. We've done enough like this. We it'll be, we're, we're all right. And uh, again, like Mike was the best. Mike knew immediately how much it would mean to me and my career to be able to do the play by play for that. And he immediately was like, Hey, you know, you can do this. Let's do it. And, and the worst part was I had taken the Toledo notes out of my backpack right before I left the house because I was like, well, I, <laughs> oh, man. I don't I don't need these. Right. We don't, right. We're not doing the game. We don't need these. And I had all my notes from the, the two games the last two days. Right. Right. And I, t- I took them out of my backpack and I, I just left them here sitting on the chair because I was like, I don't I don't need these. You know, Toledo's playing Xavier. And uh, so I luckily I still had my spotting chart on my computer so i pulled it up as a document on my computer i didn't have anything for xavier the everything i did everything i said the entire game for xavier was just based on me you know listening to you guys listening to podcasts list or you know reading knowing xavier being knowing the team uh uh, and I could do Xavier with my eyes closed any day of the week, but well, that was all... that was pretty obvious from the broadcast. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you guys didn't. You guys did obviously didn't miss a, skip a beat there, but obviously you haven't seen Toledo. Having seen Toledo play Bradley in Oakland the previous two days, I mean, you guys weren't totally flying blind, I guess. No, yeah, exactly. And then that was the biggest thing was that we had done two Toledo games already. So I mean, again, I didn't even really use any notes for them either because I knew all the guys, I knew all what had happened the last two days, and knew everything about the coaching staff and. <laughs> And I uh, got that nugget in about Jeff Massey and all those guys. So that was good. And uh, but the but the best part was that 
Chris Schaff, um, uh, who was the producer for the game, he came on our headset with about 15, 30 seconds till we went on the air. And I heard him in my ear and he said, hey, guys, we're all connected. We're good to go. We're going to have commercials. We're going to do this just like we would any other, you know, Xavier Centos Center broadcast production. And uh, that was a real big I, for Mike and I, we kind of looked at each other and that was a big wave of, uh, you know, calm. And hey, this is this is easy. This is back of the hand. This is anything we've ever done ever. And it was it, it worked out really well. And those guys, Greg Lotzenheiser, Hicks, Iser, uh, those guys for being able to get it done behind the scenes. And then the investment that Xavier made into the technology to have the CentOS Center's production room available to do that on 10 minutes notice was phenomenal. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it went really well. It really did. I mean, it's shocking to know kind of how that was happening last second to be put together. But let me ask you from the broadcasting perspective, because I go back to even like my first broadcast last year on the NKU radio team, and I got pulled out of the stands three games into the year. And I remember <laughs> our, the first segment we did, I was talking 150 miles an hour, which I already talk fast. And I'm like, you know, that first segment was just so much adrenaline and juice coming for me. And I know, you know, it's my alma mater. I'm excited, all of that stuff. But that was pregame show. It was 30 minutes before tip-off, right? So I had plenty of time to get that out. And then you get to tip-off and you're feeling like, okay, this is like a normal game. And you feel like you settle in a little bit. For you, this is your alma mater. And you know, okay, everyone's sitting at home because it's a holiday weekend. It's, it's that Friday. Everyone is waiting to watch this game. And it just got pulled from TV. Every Xavier fan is going to be watching me call my first Xavier game for my alma mater. I imagine you had General Lynn. I imagine you had Goosebumps. And yet you have to basically come in hot right at tip-off as you go on air. You had no pregame show to kind of nope. settle yourself down and talk fast or anything. And you guys came in really smooth and did a great job. What was that like? Were you were you fighting emotions at all? Or were you really that settled in as much as you sounded? Yeah, I told my friends and my family I didn't really have any time to get nervous. But at the same time, it, I was really comforted knowing the team and, and knowing Xavier and knowing Toledo, I felt like I had a really good command of both teams to be able to do that. Like if that had just been, if that had been day one and it had been Bradley and Toledo, I'd have been much more nervous than I was doing day three of both teams already having played two games. But uh, for me, like going into the game, I just felt, well, first of all, that was the first division one men's, play-by-play game I have done because the first two days I had let Mike do the play-by-play for the afternoon games and I was the color analyst yeah so I had Mike and I after Thanksgiving night when we left Cintas I said hey do you mind for my tape for my reel if I do the afternoon game as play-by-play on Friday afternoon to do uh Bradley and Oakland they said yeah no problem like again Mike greatest guy in the world just no problem you can do that and uh and you know have it for your tape so i could put it out and cut it up and and have things to show you know some people for for my work and uh and i've done i mean rick you know like nku or the northern kentucky nky i guess high school basketball you know i've done xavier women's basketball play by play so i've been around and done it wasn't like it was the first basketball game by any stretch of the word but it was uh my first d1 men's game and to do it at that level with Xavier. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole game yet, but I think it turned out pretty well. I was pretty happy with the product. Was it one of those things where after the game was over, you kind of just sat there and were like, 
wow, I can't believe that just happened. I don't remember <laughs> anything about that game whatsoever. I mean, cause I, I, I know, uh, I, I very briefly about 10 years ago, got roped in to do some, uh, uh, some GCL basketball games, which fortunately, because there's only like six possessions a quarter, it's not as uh, hectic <laughs> as a college game. But I remember, uh, I, I, I got called down to Cintas and did like a, a regional championship game. I think it was LaSalle Moeller. And I like, after the game, I was just like, I, I have no idea what happened in that game. <laughs> I, I can't even remember a thing. Cause it all just was like a shot. Was it, did you have that experience doing it or being kind of a veteran of doing play by play? Maybe it was, it was just another day at the office for you. It definitely wasn't another day at the office, but it didn't move as fast as I guess I thought I would like right before the game. Um, I, uh, I was worried that I, you know, how am I going to, remember everything how my and then i thought no and, and tom decordy uh who's a great producer for espn and one of my closest uh contacts would say i mean he's helped me tremendously get better as a broadcaster and he sent me a text when he found out he sent me a text at the under 16 of the first half and i checked my phone and i had I mean, I had a million texts and a million tweets of everybody reaching out, but I was trying to like filter through and see if anybody, you know, family or whatever, anything that I wanted to answer right away at that under 16. And like, I had 10 seconds. I just wanted to check real quick. And luckily right at the top, uh, Tom had sent me a text and he said, this is an unbelievable opportunity, but you know, remember your fundamentals, take a deep breath and you'll do great. And that, that really settled me down. And you know, I thought, Hey, I've been here before I've done it a million times. And a lot of times, Dan, like it does, like if I'm doing a football game and there's an injury in the first quarter or an injury in the second quarter, like if I don't write it down, I just black. And I say that all the time to people where somebody will say like, Hey, you broadcasted this game. What happened? I'm like, I have no idea what happened. <laughs> I got no clue. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, who are, I, I'm curious to ask this question and then we'll move on and talk about the actual games, but I'm curious, uh, just because you're kind of, of a, I mean, frankly, a younger generation than me, who are your, who are your kind of influences as an announcer? Who are the guys, guys or women that, that you look up to as a, uh, as somebody coming up through this business? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say, um, well, I'm from northern virginia washington dc and i'm a huge nationals fan and dave jagler and charlie slows baseball wise have been huge uh listening to them i think the detail they bring to the game and, and the picture they paint on the radio because i've always enjoyed radio broadcasting even though i want to do tv broadcasting they've done a great job so i think from a baseball perspective them but basketball wise i don't i, I don't um you know you, you don't want to try and copy people necessarily but people that I, I would look up to Joe Davis a younger guy has is tremendous the preparation he puts in I've uh, he, he's been really helpful to me with learning how to be prepared for a game um, Aaron Goldsmith from Seattle that uh, he's a Seattle Mariners broadcaster and he's he does a lot of college basketball and college football he's he's been uh, a huge help too to me for just the pace of the game and knowing how to do a game inside and out. And, uh, you know, those guys have, have really helped me a lot and, uh, listening to them. And, and that's what I try to do. Even if it's not just one particular guy and, and you're, you're always, you're watching a game, you're listening and Hey, what kind of detail, how do they tell a story? And especially in basketball too, when it's not like baseball or football where you have an ample amount of time to tell a story, like you might only squeeze in a story at a free throw that that might be your only chance. So, being prepared, being under control, being calm. Those guys have really helped me a lot. And Dan Horde too. I, I, I can't say that without saying Dan Horde. Dan Horde, uh, basketball wise is one of the best. 
Well, the broadcast came off very well. You were very smooth. And I mean, you look, you don't want to trash other broadcasters. I know you don't, but I'm willing to do it. Uh, the <laughs> FS1 broadcast stink for the most part. We have color guys who put in no prep work on the teams. They don't know names half the times. They ha- they literally have no clue what type of styles the teams play. They're totally wrong in their analysis most of the time. To hear you guys call the game and have knowledge, uh, intimate knowledge of Xavier, which is what everyone was there to watch, but also because you had called Toledo the first two days, you knew what they looked like a little bit too and had some key points about them to bring up. You guys did a great job of of doing the broadcast and i said it on musketeer report uh the twitter account it did the tweet did well and i really do mean this i think fs1 would be really well served this year given the covid situation all the traveling they're asking broadcasters do to just find teams like you guys at the given sites and make it sort of like an espn3 situation like nku has a set broadcast team if a game's at nku they have the same broadcasters there's nku guys every single game FS1 should do that this year for the Big East teams and just say, find your own broadcasters, keep them, you know, bubbled as much as you can, test them if you want to, and let them stay there and call the game so they're not traveling all around the world. Uh, You guys did a fantastic job, better than the FS1 broadcast, quite honestly, (laughs) and it would be great, I think, if they made the commitment to do that. It would be really smart of them. Oh, I appreciate that, Rick. That means a lot. And and thanks to everybody that, that listened, that reached out. And I, I tried to answer as many people as I could, but I know I didn't get to everybody. So I, it's it made me feel really, really good to see that not only did we do the broadcast, but I felt like we did it well. Chris Schaff, Dave Overbeck, those guys behind the scenes were able to pull it off from a technical perspective to have the, the stats on the screen. Great shots of the Cintas Center. The camera crew was there. And that's another thing. The camera crew never knew when their cameras were live and the tally lights, the little red lights that let you know your camera is the one being used, they weren't working and the camera crew could not hear the production crew to know when their camera was being called out. That's crazy. So it was a total team effort all the way around. And again, like just before we move on, my guy, Mike Schmaltz, I was so glad to be able to do that with him. We, we He and I have done Big East baseball tournaments together the last couple of years at Prasco. Uh, you know, he's he he and I he was on the first broadcast I ever did. He and I called a Xavier game back in 2016 together. We've been together, you know, doing these last five years doing that. And and he's done, like I said, women's basketball. If you've listened to a women's basketball game in the last 20 years, you've heard him. Um, and uh, so I was really, really glad to be able to do that with him. No, yeah, I don't want to shortchange Mike at all. He was great, too. And I, I really mean that about the, the team of you guys were better than the FS1 teams we normally get. And that includes him on, on the color because he did bring up some really good points throughout the game about both teams, uh, having the Toledo knowledge as well. And I'm glad you brought up the production value because it the production value of your guys' broadcast was really, really good considering all the things that you just mentioned and everything else. I mean, it went off without a hitch. It really did. Um, and like, I mean, I saw other people who were like, it's nice not having annoying commercials. Like just fading <laughs> out to like stats and a still shot of the rim or whatever was nice sometimes too. So uh, yeah, we will move on and, and talk about the game. But uh, one last question for you on the broadcast side of things. What would your dream job be? What's that, what's like down the road look like for you? Uh, I've always said that I wanted to do Major League Baseball in the summer and then do college basketball in the winter. I mean, I'm sure maybe you mix some football in there too, but there's some overlap. So baseball and basketball has always been the dream. And, uh, you know, to, to check that box right there. I mean, Hey, Mike and I called a game together the day I graduated, I graduated in the morning and that night we called a Xavier UC baseball game from great American. And now I've done a Xavier game on TV and it sounds dramatic, but like if my vocal cords were to give out tomorrow and like that was the end of the road, 
I've had some great experiences so far. So maybe down the road, there's, there's some stuff I still want to do for sure. Baseball at, at the major league level and, uh, and, and college basketball at the network level for sure. But I've, I've been really lucky and really fortunate to have the experiences that I've had so far. And thanks to Xavier nation and everybody that reached out, it meant the world. Yeah. It's funny you say that because there is a certain, um, once you at least did it, you can, you scratched the itch, so to speak, to a certain extent. <laughs> I felt the same exact way because, like, it legitimately there was the concern of, hey, COVID happened. NKU is a small school. All your all your sponsors are bars and places that are being killed right now by being shut down. I'm thinking, how are they going to be able to afford me? Most of the Horizon League has only one broadcaster to begin with. We were fortunate to have two. Like, I'm probably going to get whacked. And to be quite honest, I was totally at peace. I was like, I did it for that year. That was awesome. I'll go back to the fifth row and start yelling at refs again. Like, I'm totally <laughs> fine with that. But yeah, let's let's move back into it. I, I want to start with you, Dan. Watching this team over three days, what's the general takeaway? I mean, Xavier beats Oakland 101-49, Bradley 51-50, Toledo 76-73. I think a lot of fans are kind of in a negative spot with the team right now. What's your general feeling, would you say, after those three games? Well, I, I, I want to start off by saying this. I mean, uh, this was an MTE that X had to pull together pretty late in the process you know they put on six games over the holiday weekend it went off without a hitch obviously the fs1 situation um came out of nowhere but they were able to play all the games so that's a positive i think uh, given what we've seen elsewhere in the world of sports um the other thing was like my first my first impulse was like i i took uh i i had wednesday off from work and so i turned on fs1 at, at noon and i saw you know Xavier tip off. And it was, it it was a weird, it was a weird feeling. I wouldn't say it was like emotional, but it was strange because like the last like normal thing that I remember doing before COVID hit was checking my phone every four minutes on a work trip to see if Xavier could come back against DePaul at the Big East tournament. So it was like this weird bookend. Like I know, obviously the pandemic is not over, but it felt weirdly normal to be watching a Xavier game, even though it was noon on a Wednesday um, in front of an, in an arena with like 250 people and, and, and so forth. But um, I, I think it was a mixed bag. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I was hugely negative about what I saw this week. Um, I, I think there were very positive things and there were very negative things. I think the Oakland game is a little bit of, I, I think there's a limited amount that we can say about the Oakland game because just the circumstances for, of the opponent were so weird. I mean, they, my understanding is they hadn't, they had barely practiced in the month preceding the game. They were playing like this weird zone that apparently Greg Campy had never played in 37 years there. Um, They were obviously not game ready or game fit. And, and I mean, Xavier just completely demolished them, basically able to do whatever they wanted. Um, the other two games, you know, there were, there were, there were positives in both games. There were negatives in both games. I think the end of the, I think just Dwan Odom in the last 30 seconds of the Bradley game kind of shows that, that duality, um, you know, arguably makes a, makes a bet. I kind of am more forgiving of the decision he made with 30 seconds left to try and score and make it a two possession game. I got what he was doing. I don't mind the aggressiveness, but obviously put X in a little bit of a bind, then he makes a terrific play the next time down the floor to, to, to score the winning basket. Um, but that kind of was my feeling the whole time. It was like, there, there's a lot of things here to take away that were very positive. The way Zach Fremantle played in the first two games, especially at the beginning of the, of the, um, was it the Bradley game that he started off really hot? I think it was. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the way, the way he played against Oakland, the way he played against uh, in, in the first bit of the Bradley game, I thought was really good. Uh, and then Kiki Tandy obviously was excellent against Oakland, hitting everything he looked at. And then against Toledo came up very, very big for the Musketeers with, I believe, I don't have the box score in front of me, but 24 points, I think, career high. Um, so obviously uh, uh, those guys showed some things. But, you know, it's obviously a work in progress. Um, a lot of new pieces, a lot of moving parts. And I think what we saw is kind of what we expected. Uh, this team is going to – it has the facility to shoot a lot better than they have the last two years. They have more talent offensively, but it's got to come together. And when they don't, when they're not hitting shots, it's going to look a lot like the rock fights that we've seen the last two years. And and the Bradley game obviously was an example of that. Yeah. I want to get into that more. I'm also going to drill more into the individuals here as we continue, but Paul, I want to get your general thoughts. You were there in person, Um, general feelings after watching the team. I mean, you think they're, they're underachieving to start not meeting your expectations or what'd you kind of see out there? Neither of you were at any of the three games, right? Correct. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, I tweeted this out and I don't really know if the, my point came across as well as I wanted it to, but in the first game against Oakland, it looked like it was almost like an open gym and they looked so calm, cool and collected and relaxed. It was like they were just running an open gym on a Saturday morning and the shots were easy the, the offense looked fluid. Everything looked great. And you were like, if this is what the offense is going to look like forever, then we'll take this every day of the week. And then you realize that Oakland wasn't exactly, you know, world beaters and they were going to have some uh, stiffer competition the next couple of days. And, uh, it, you know, the, I think the environment at Cintas maybe, maybe helped in that first game. I don't know. I don't want to say that they helped not having fans there, but it certainly didn't seem like any of the newcomers had any nerves. There were no nerves anywhere. So it was positive to start the season. And then the next two days, I don't know. I, I don't want to take anything away from Bradley because that's a team, especially especially Bradley, maybe more so than Toledo. I was a little more surprised with their performance against Toledo. I get maybe, Agreed. you know, I, I wasn't shocked by Bradley because that's a team that's won the Missouri Valley two years in a row. Right. They've been to the NCAA tournament. They're not going to back down against a team like Xavier. I wasn't shocked by that at all. And you look around the rest of the NCAA, Virginia, you know, Kentucky earlier, these teams are struggling against these supposedly mid-major, smaller conference teams that are playing above expectations early on in the season. Well, I think Richmond and Bradley is kind of a good comparison because they both have veterans who are who play that tough half-court defensive style that works very well for them. And they're all – they didn't need the preseason to figure out that system. They've been in it. They know how to do it. They've got tough guys. They've got leaders. And the difference between Richmond and Bradley actually is Bradley has high major size. Like their big guys are legit big guys. So they weren't overwhelmed by Xavier's bigs. In fact, they were playing a bigger lineup than Xavier was to start the game. So, you you know, there was a lot of lot of things there um, with the Bradley game that I thought that was a tough game. And actually, in some ways, you saw some really positive things in, in them pulling that win out. I agreed with you. I thought Toledo was a team you should have overwhelmed with your size and athleticism. And it turned out they had to go small to match Toledo and, and Toledo dictated the game and Xavier had to figure some things out. But but. The, what this I would team say, lost a lot of games like that last year, you know, where they I, couldn't figure it out. What, but I, I think with the Toledo game, what you, what you can't look past is the fact that Xavier's best player basically was taken out of the game in the first five minutes. I White mean, Jalen Reynolds. I, I be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, the, that was a very jail. That was a very like, 
that was a very like angry Jalen game. Yeah, yeah. We would have those every once in a while where you have two fouls and a technical in two and a half minutes. And those two are very heard from again. But yeah, that was obviously a game where, where Fremantle kind of got taken out very quickly. Um, and it, I, I mean, kind of, and, and some of it was, uh, was a, a call or two that maybe shouldn't have gone against him. And some of it was just him not reacting to that adversity very well. Um, but by the same token, I mean, that kind of, that changed the, the, the texture of that game. And X had to play from behind basically for the whole game. I don't think Xavier really had a lead in that game until what, 10 minutes left. Um, yeah. And, so, that was, and then they lost it right again and had to chase again. So, right. So, so they, they got put behind the eight ball because of the, because of Fremantle basically being taken off the chessboard that, that quickly. And, um, and obviously they're playing two guys down also, we know, you know, they didn't need Colby or CJ against, uh, against Oakland. Obviously, I think they probably could have gotten by with the three of us on the court with, uh, <laughs> in the second half, but um, maybe not snow though. No, uh, that's a liability. Speaking of snow, shout out to him for tweeting in about the uh, classifications of those texts on Fremantle, because I had to text Iser and figure out at the beginning of the game, what the tech was like, what he got in the very beginning. And then he got the two texts and then he was all of a sudden back out on the court. And I was like, all right, this has got to be some sort of a rule change or a rule exception or something. And then Brian tweeted in about the class A and class B. And I was like, perfect. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought the Toledo game was a little bit of an aberration um, because of those circumstances. I mean, obviously you don't like to be, you don't want to be in that kind of a back and forth game against a probably a mid tier Mac team, but, um, but I thought Xavier did a nice job of finishing that game. Um, made all their free throws down the stretch. I think they made what their last eight in the last minute of the game or the last six while Toledo was chasing the game. Um, Toledo hit some threes down the stretch to close, to, 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 to bring the game back to one possession and X had an answer every time. I mean, I, I, I don't know that losing to Bradley would have been that devastating to Xavier's overall season. I think losing to Toledo probably wouldn't have looked real good. So for them to pull that game out, I, I thought that, that that did show me something, but obviously there's a lot, a lot of improvement that needs to be made as they move forward next week with, uh, with, with tougher competition on the horizon in UC Oklahoma and then the beginning of the conference schedule. I saw a lot of the uh, conversation online centered around people saying more of the same, you know, I'm, it looks like more of the same from Xavier and coach Steele led teams. I'm curious what they mean by more of the same, because like if they mean poor shooting in the second two games, I get it. If they mean some poor shot selection, I get it to an extent. If they mean the offense looks the same and they saw like the same system being ran out there. I don't know what we were watching because we didn't watch the same games. To me, I saw a very different offensive look from the Xavier team. And to, if I was a fan I would be very encouraged by the fact of like things got tough against Bradley and Toledo and you saw Travis Steele telling the guys to push the ball and get the ball up the court. And I think when this offense was operating at its best, they were pushing the ball and playing with more pace. That's very different from last year. When this team sped up the last two years, they turned the ball over and made stupid decisions and were awful. This team, it looks like they start to get in a rhythm and start to feel the flow a little bit more offensively. That's what everyone was hoping for. And like, you know, in terms of the, the offense in the half court, you're not, slowing it down, throwing it to one side. It's sticking on one side of the court and either getting a, a guy with, driving with his head down and in, in Najee Marshall into a crowded defense or pounding it into a big man. You have no one playing in the post. 
You're getting the ball swinging from right to left, both sides of the court a lot. And yes, there's been some questionable shot selection. But if you're going to tell your team to play more free-flowing with less rules and try to get guys like Kiki Tandy to cook, guess what? You're going to have to let them make some mistakes. And like Nate Johnson comes out, shoots really well the first day. Next day comes out, takes a few heat checks in the first half. Probably not good looks, but he was also on fire the day before. Like, I'm okay with Nate Johnson taking those looks if this is the style that they are trying to play. So I think there are definitely reasons to be concerned about the shooting overall because without Kiki Tandy lighting it up, this team, I think, is still questionable. If you don't get big contributions from C.J. Wilcher when he comes back and if you don't get a waiver for Adam Kunkel. But aside from that, I get I get the overall concerns offensively to an extent, but I did not see the same team out there as I saw last year. I don't know what you guys think about that. Rick, what did you think about uh, Kiki not playing much in that second half? I think that was against Bradley. Well, I think it showed the luxury that Travis Steele has this year of actually having some talent and depth. Last year, and you know, last year you started to see it a little more since he had guys like Freeman and Tandy. He could maybe take Quentin Gooden out like he did in the second half of the year more when he wasn't listening to what they wanted from you know that spot. But you know, the year before that, he really didn't have any options, and he just had to play those guys because those were his best options. They were by far the best practice players too. So you couldn't even say like, "Hey, they're not earning any practice." You would have lost credibility because they were clearly the best guys in practice. This year. Like, Dwan Odom has pushed Kiki Tandy every day in practice, and guess what? Dwan Odom is now the starting point guard, and Kiki Tandy is not. And when Kiki Tandy did not give them anything because he wasn't hitting shots, he wasn't creating off the bounce and making good decisions, and he wasn't defending at all against Bradley, he didn't play in the second half. So that's a luxury that Travis Steele has not had, and I think it allows him to instill a little more discipline in his team. And it also shows you some of the issues this team might have because they're relying on Kiki Tandy to give them a lot of offensive firepower. If he can't stay on the court and give them enough in the second half of a close game, they're going to have some close games. And in Big East play, it might equate to some losses. So I've been kind of lower on this team than I think a lot of people. And those are the reasons because I don't know that they are ready to come together to win games all the time. And I don't know that Kiki Tandy is ready to step up and give that like big three kind of look to go along with Paul Scruggs and Zach Freeman on a consistent basis. But on the nights that he is, like he was the first and third games, when he shoots like that and he attacks like he did um, in this, the Toledo game at times, then this team can be pretty dangerous. They have a, a lot more talent offensively and a lot more potential and upside. So, One thing, uh, uh, interesting comment that Coach Steele made, and I, I, I don't remember if it was after the Oakland game or before, but he talked about how uh, for this team their shooting would be their spacing. Um, and one thing that I noticed is, you know, X did not shoot very well from a percentage basis from three in these three games, I think they were 32% in total, but they took 75 threes, um, which I think is a good thing. I think in general, Xavier needs, I think one of the weaknesses Xavier's had over the last few years is they just didn't, they didn't use the three point line as much as they should have. And now that you've got some depth with a number of different guys who are reliable three point shooters, even if they didn't show it this week, but you think about Tandy Johnson, Fremantle is solid from three. Jason Carter can hit threes. You don't want him shooting a whole lot of them, but he can hit he can hit an open three when he's got the opportunity. We're going to see Wilcher and Jones, who both are uh, who both are good shooters, have a history of being good shooters. I mean, you've got you've got as at Rick as you say, and then Paul Scruggs has a history. I think he's you know career thirty seven percent shooter or something like that. You've got a lot of guys who can go out there and space the floor, and that's going to make life a lot easier on those inside guys. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm happy to see that and hopefully they'll regress to the mean as far as the percentages go, because frankly, if they'd have hit a couple more threes in those second and third games, we're not, 
we're probably not talking about a disappointing result or being disappointed with the team at this point. Yeah, you mentioned Paul Scruggs. Let's talk about him for a second because uh, he's obviously shooting terribly and he'll he'll shoot 37%. Like he has proven that he is the most consistent guy. Now he is not a guy you can rely on to shoot you into wins. He's not going to light you up and start hitting five threes in a game. He's not a Kiki Tandy type shooter. But overall, over the long haul, over the course of the season, he's going to shoot 37% from three. It's almost guaranteed. The one thing that I find interesting is watching this team – I think Paul Scruggs is benefiting more than anyone from the new look, having more room to operate and more driving lanes and having an open post. So it's not the lanes aren't clogged as much because you're seeing him get into the lane more. He can do that, get to two feet, step back, fade away shot like he finished the game off uh, uh, against Bradley. You can see him get fouled more. You can see him get all the way to the rim and actually finish more. He's also the guy that seems to be having the most trouble adapting to the new style because I noticed the young guys – the newer guys, the ball's moving from side to side a lot more with them quicker. They're they're getting the ball, they're rotating. It's not sticking. They're not looking to pound it in. They're not looking to dribble three times before they drive. When the ball goes to Paul right now. He seems to be sticking a little bit more. It, it slows down the offense. So I think because he's a holdover, he's played with those other guys the last two years so much, he's the one that needs to change his mindset the most and, and realize that this team's different. Ball movement is the key here, and they need to get that thing pinging around and moving side to side as much as they possibly can so they can take advantage of their athleticism, their speed, and the spacing on the floor. Uh, what did you guys think about um, Jason Carter in those first few? Because I felt like he was kind of quiet at points, in his, but his defense, you know, he didn't score a ton, but like career high 11 rebounds, I think he had in one of the games. And uh, I thought his defense, he played pretty well. And, you know, you see some people be critical about him on offense and stuff like that. But, I mean, I don't know. He had his ups and downs in those three games, but for the most part, I thought he played decently to his role. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. I I, I guess last year it almost seemed like because of the uh, the personnel that Xavier had, he was almost a uh, – I don't know how best to say this, but he was almost like a redundant part for them. Like um, he kind of had a – his skills – were almost duplicated by other guys who were actually, you know, slightly better at the things that he, and it, it just yeah. seemed like he struggled to find a role. As yeah, we went full, through the I agree. Total hundred percent. And so this year, I think that it's, you know, it's probably having the summer to work with the, with the team, but also just the fact that as Rick says, you know, this is not a team that you can just stick everybody's foot in the key and play defense against you've got to come out. You've got to respect the shooting that they have, and that's going to give him a lot more room to operate. And so while I agree with you, Paul, that he, he, he wasn't spectacular, I thought that he was steady. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot more out of him this year. I think, you know, what you have in Jason Carter, he's going to be really good defensively, especially defending the post when he has to defend perimeter players. He's not as effective, but he can get by. He gives you some versatility there and offensively he'll move the ball. Well, cause he's a good passer and in theory, they think he can be an average shooter. He really hasn't quite gotten to that point yet. He's been a little disappointing as a shooter, I think, from the outside, especially in you know when he gets open looks in big moments. But overall, he's not going to be looked to for points. And I think that's fine, Like because I think his rebounding is defense, especially on this team where, as Dan pointed out, you need that rebounding and you need that defense and that experience a little bit more. It's going to be more important this year. But ideally you you pair him with another piece. So I think maybe Colby Jones and CJ Wilcher come back and they can play some minutes at the four and give you a little more offensive playmaking and pop from that position. CJ Wilcher can shoot a little bit more. And then 
you get by with Jason Carter a lot easier. I think the issue for this team is last year they needed a lot from him. He wasn't able to provide that. They need a lot from somebody, and he wasn't able to provide that. This year, they don't need it as much, but now they're relying on him for pretty much all the minutes at the four right now. And ideally, you could get someone else in there to give you a little more scoring punch when you take him out of the game because defensively and rebounding, he's going to be fine. We got a few minutes left here. I'm curious to hear you guys' assessment of, of the newcomers that did play this week, particularly Duane Odom. Yeah, Paul, go ahead. What do you think of the freshman point guard getting the start? Well, I thought he I thought he made the most of it for sure. And it was it was funny when I was watching him play. It just I felt like he felt it looked to me, and again, it, it was a little disjointed for me because the first two days I was doing the stats the whole game, so I didn't get as good of a look the first two days as I did in the last game. So my real big impression of him was from uh, game three. And I thought he, for the most part, I mean, yeah, you can look at the decision-making in game one where he comes down, he makes a horrible decision, but then he comes back and he bails you out on the next possession to win the game. And I mean, that's a freshman making a play like that. So for what it's worth, I thought he made the most of his first three games in the last game, especially he, got some minutes. He was able to get to the rim. I mean, the space that he created with that one crossover in uh, the game against Toledo, you could see the flashes of athleticism and the speed that he had. And uh, I was impressed. I thought he played well. Yeah, I think the good far outweighed the bad. In fact, I think the bad was really minimal. The fact that he started and played a lot of minutes, extended minutes at the point guard position as a freshman in his first games without any exhibitions, without any secret scrimmages or anything, and he barely turned the ball over at all. I mean, that goes for really the whole team. They didn't turn the ball over at all the three games. I thought that was a major bright spot. Dwan Odom's going to be a star. I mean, he's going to be the best defensive point guard Xavier's maybe ever had. You saw the blocked shots and the things he's capable of with his athleticism, it's just extraordinary. So I thought that was probably the biggest bright spot over the first three games was the play of your freshman point guard getting a start under those conditions and, and performing with the poise and uh, showing the playmaking ability and everything that he can bring a really selfless looking player who can also give you a pop and, and some uh, enthusiasm and momentum on the offensive end with the excitement that he brings as well because of the flashiness. Um, Then, Brian Griffin and Nate Johnson, I thought were two bright spots as well as newcomers. You know, Nate Johnson, especially in that first game, showed you that he's not just a guy that's out there as a role guy who can defend a little bit and play tough on the boards, which he did in all three games. But in that first game, he showed the ability to to get hot and give you some serious offensive firepower. Now, was that just because Oakland was a lazy defense playing his own and he got wide open looks and he can do that? Or is he the type of guy you can rely on for the potential of, you know, every third or fourth night he might hit three or more threes? I think it's the latter because you watch his his tape at Gardner-Webb. That's who he was. He shot 39%, but he's not a knockdown three-point shooter. He's a guy that hit like five, six, seven threes in one game, and then he went one for seven in the next. So I think you could get that type of performance out of him occasionally. The problem is on the nights that he doesn't shoot, which is going to happen because he's streaky, you got to get more consistency out of guys like Kiki Tandy and Paul Scruggs from the outside. And then hopefully maybe CJ Wilcher can bring more. And then finally, Brian Griffin, the rebounding this team desperately needs, and he clearly gives you that. And he also dunks the ball a lot around the room, which that's enjoyable to watch. So I'm for more of that. <laughs> I thought uh, I, I, I agree with you on Nate Johnson. I thought, um, you know, since, since Travis has uh, became head coach, they've been kind of, they, they've had, they had Kyle Castle in the first year, they Bryce Moore the second year. Uh, guys that they brought in from the outside that they were hoping to get that kind of three and D um, 
veteran presence on the outside. And I, I don't, and you know, Castlin, it never really worked. Uh, Bryce Moore had injury issues and never really gotten any kind of groove. I Johnson seems like the most likely to actually be a big contributor. And the other nice thing is um, if, if he does have an extended shooting slump, Rick, as, as you mentioned, he's Travis has got depth this year. We, we talked about, you know, we haven't seen them play yet, but Colby Jones, CJ Wilcher, guys that can step in to kind of that similar role. So it's not like he's going to have to keep running him out there if he's, if he's ineffective. Um, I, and then Griffin, I, I, you know, that was always a weird one. Um, you know, cause his, his, his background where he, where he had previously played was, was such a different level of competition. It was, it's like the I, worst level of D2 I've ever seen too. It's not even <laughs> remotely good. It is the worst basketball ever. And, and, and as a result, you know, you, you really don't know what you're going to get out of a guy like that. Um, and I, I thought he, I thought he looked like he belonged playing at the D1 level. Um, you know, the, granted Xavier didn't play any quote unquote high majors this week, but, um, but he looked like a guy that can go in there and give you minutes. Yeah. Um, Defensively, he's got some issues for sure, but offensively and rebounding wise, he gives you something you don't have otherwise. Yeah. You're not going to want to have him guard like, I don't know, like a Nate Watson or something like that, or, or uh, the big kid at Seton Hall, but. Uh, yeah. Or any but, ball screens. Well, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I thought he was pretty good. And then the last guy I wanted to just mention was Deontay miles, who I, who I thought, um, you know, didn't play a huge amount in the second and third games, but I thought he showed some signs. Um, I don't know, you know, we've always talked about him as, as a little bit of a project. I don't know how much run he's going to get this year, but, uh, but I was kind of impressed. He showed a little bit more polish offensively than I expected. And obviously his, uh, his ability to protect the rim, um, especially in a more wide, in a, in a more wide open game, I think could be very useful for Xavier, you know, in small doses this season. The only issue I see with Deontay is this team lacks rebounding to begin with. I mean, they got outscored in second chance points by three mid majors in a row. Now Um, they can't rebound when Deontay miles is in the game. He just fades on the glass. And that's the only problem I see because he can give them rim protection that they don't have. Otherwise he gives them some offensively at times when he gets in his groove there, but it, you know, they have, they have to have some rebounding in that position right now. And he gives them really none when he's in the game. Yeah. I I thought Brian Griffin to me was the brightest spot of the whole three games. And like, was he the best player on the court for Xavier? No, but he, to me brought something to this team. Like you guys both mentioned there that this team desperately, desperately needs. And you could tell he was involved. He knew what he was doing. And I mean, he even showed a little bit of an ability to score there in that third game too where you knew that you get the rebounding, get some scoring. I, I don't know how many he finished with. I don't know if he actually – if he went into double figures, if he had 10 or if he finished with eight. But, I mean, you know, he was he was throwing it down at the rim and he had space down there too and he was clearing out his guys on the boards. And, yeah, like you said, Rick, it was a little frustrating sometimes with Deontay rebounding-wise, but he picked up those two quick fouls in, in the third game where they had to slot him in because Fremantle was out. And so he didn't really get the best look at him there. But uh, offensively against Oakland, again, I don't know how much you can take away offensively from that. But for what it's worth, I, I thought he played pretty well on the offensive end. It's just the rebounding's got to improve. Yeah, he looked good yeah, against Griffin, Oakland. Griffin had eight points and four rebounds against Toledo, including three offensive rebounds. So yeah. uh, made an impact in his in his minutes there.
Yep. Well, the Musketeers have three games of the next week. They have Eastern Kentucky on Monday, recording the Sunday night. So tomorrow, a quick turnaround uh, here. If you're you're listening to this, hopefully shortly, this is going to be a great game for them because Eastern Kentucky plays up and down the entire time. They press the entire time. They're not going to let Xavier slow down. So it, we'll get a chance to see what this team looks like playing full court, playing with a lot of pace and how the offense goes. You know, last time they played Eastern Kentucky, they shot like a billion percent from the field and got layups and dunks all over the place. So that could be the case again, but I'm just interested to see how well the ball moves. And, you know, one of the other things I thought was interesting to see, like when when you got some pressure late in games here the, the last few days, being able to put Dwan Odom, Kiki Tandy, Paul Scruggs all on the floor at the same time, you're pretty tough to press. You know, they, they ping the ball one or two times and they're up the court in a, in a flash, especially with Dwan pushing the pace. So I think we'll get to see a lot of that against Eastern Kentucky. That'll be interesting. And then you got Tennessee Tech on Wednesday and the Crosstown shootout on Sunday. Any other uh, thoughts from you guys on the upcoming week, what you need to see, what you're looking for from the team? I guess what I would say is, uh, first of all, uh, hopefully the Eastern Kentucky game will get out of hand so we can see the jumbo package again because that was one of the funniest uh, – <laughs> funniest Xavier lineups I can remember I was just I, I was kind of half watching the game by that point because it was it was so out of control and I'm like I keep looking up I'm like oh that's so Miles is out there and Griffin's out there and Fremantle's out there and wait Carter's four at the bigs? Two? <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh so that was that was pretty interesting um but yeah I mean I I think I think we need to see a little bit more consistency um and uh really take it to these teams because I think they've got to get they got to gain a little bit of confidence and they've got to be be ready for a different set of challenges as soon as this week is over. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it'll be uh, I think there'll be uh, good opportunities, good warm up opportunities. Um, but but they're not going to tell us a whole lot. I think we're going to learn a lot about this team on Sunday. Yeah, I don't have really anything. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's Sunday, the shootouts in your first real time to see what this team's made of. So go out there and avoid the bad loss this week and uh, make sure you know what you're doing going into Sunday. That's for sure. Yeah, I think if you, if you see, because I think the biggest concern for everyone right now has got to be the offense, right? Everyone wanted to see better offense. They, they're they okay with the defense maybe taking a little hit because you lost guys like Najee and, and even Gooden on the defensive end and Tyreek cleaning the glass every time. But you want to see this team shoot better, more consistently. You want to see them score some points more easily than they did the last two games, even though it was better in the second half against Toledo. If you can't score and shoot against Eastern Kentucky, that's a bad sign. You know what I mean? So, like, you want to see them get on track here before the UC game. There's no question about that. Uh, Any final thoughts from either of you guys before we wrap this one up? I I did – I was hoping, Rick, you could give us a quick uh, update on what your understanding is on on Jones and Wiltshire and and when you anticipate that they'll be back. Yeah, I mean, I I think they're being kind of ambiguous about the timeline of when they went into protocol for a reason. Um, you know how co- college coaches like to be. Uh, they want to make it unclear about the exact date and which game they're going to be back for. I don't see a way unless the CDC changes their guidelines and they the NCAA chooses to adopt those new guidelines that they could play in the shootout based on what we know and what we've seen. Um, you know, maybe they'll claim... Instagram pictures were dated and t- pictures were taken days in advance and then posted at a later date. Uh, but it would appear that CJ Wilcher at least had practiced like the day before we found out at least. And that would have him out for the shootout based on the 14 day protocol. So right. I don't see how he plays. I don't see how either one of them play. Um, but 
Xavier's not going to tell us that, I don't think, until you know we we get past it. Se- it seems like we're probably looking at mid December before those guys are able to be back and be if and be like in basketball shape to yeah. play more than just like spot minutes at the end of a game or something like that. And it's a shame um, because I think both of them would have gotten immediate minutes. You know, you're thinking about the team getting zoned in that third game and not being able to make some shots. Uh, and you've got CJ Wilcher not there. Like that's the role he would be there for, you know, you had to go to a smaller lineup because Fremantle's on the bench with a bunch of fouls that's where you would play CJ Wilcher at the four, you know, and Colby Jones was expected to play starter like minutes from the get go coming into this thing. So both of those guys, it would have been great to see what they give this team. And maybe it's nothing, you know, they could have been just in the same dog fights because they're freshmen. We don't know, but you just like to see what it would have looked like. So um, it's going to take some time. And unfortunately for freshmen getting a setback to start your first year can sometime make it tough. You know, if your first yeah. games when you're trying to get in the flow is against big East competition, that's not usually a great thing. Yeah, we we obviously saw that last year with Kiki and uh, how long it took him to get up to speed. So, yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I did find interesting, one last note from the Travis Steele press conference today, he did mention that uh, the, the question got brought up about Mike Bray soliciting games over Twitter saying, hey, we lost our game because of COVID. Can, can anyone play us right now? We're, we're trying to schedule a game. And Steele said, hey, it could get to that point for all of us. And he mentioned the fact that even if, you know, a Big East game goes down in the season at conference play and there's no other Big East team that can play them right away and the league can't figure that out. He said they may end up doing the same thing and soliciting some random non-conference game off Twitter or through an app that Mario works on or whatever. And that I thought that was interesting that like randomly he said, look, the goal is to get to 13 games any way possible so we're eligible for the tournament. So anything goes right now. You know, I mean, we could find Xavier playing any regional team available in mid biggie season which i find fascinating and a totally interesting wrinkle to this year potentially no question about that it's going to be uh it's going to be it's going to get weird let's just say that it's (laughs) going to get it's weird already and it's going to get a lot weirder i have a feeling definitely all right paul anything else before we wrap this one up no i just i really appreciate both you guys having me on and uh thanks to everybody on twitter on musketeer report all everywhere everywhere uh people were reaching out and and sending me messages and mike as well saying uh all those nice things i hope it turned out as well as as we thought it did and you all enjoyed it and uh you know i would say that it won't happen again this year and that was our once in a lifetime kind of stars aligning things to happen but i wouldn't have thought that it happened once so who knows uh here on out, but thanks again, everybody. Thanks to you guys for having me on today. And, uh, uh, you know, it means a lot to see the support from Xavier nation and, uh, glad we were able to pull it off. Well, good job to you and Mike and and your crew. And I think most of Xavier nation is rooting that you guys do get another opportunity. (laughs) So, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Dana victory podcast available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms for Dan and Paul Fritchner. I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) 